Future of Finance podcast, where finance finds its future. Hello, I'm Dominic Cobson, co-founder of Future of Finance. My guest today is Ed Wakedi, founder and CEO of Red Swan, a blockchain-based prop tech marketplace where issuers can raise finance for commercial real estate projects by issuing tokens and accredited investors can access the asset class by buying the tokens. Ed, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Dominic. Now, we'll talk a little bit about the company first. You founded Red Swan back in April uh, 2018, I think it was, to use blockchain technology to change the real estate markets. Now, what was the, the main problem, or maybe more than one problem, that you, that you actually wanted to solve three years ago? Three years ago, we were just looking at a more uh, open way to provide internet or access for, in, in, for investments to uh, all individuals. I guess a big pain point was my position as a director of uh, capital markets for Cushman Wakefield had a lot of clients who were looking to buy into multifamily projects. And most of them didn't get an opportunity because the bigger uh, corporations, institutions played a heavier role because they had more capital to buy. So really, I, I felt that it was time for opening up the market so more investors can participate in capital markets type of activity, especially the higher quality types of product. Right. You wanted to democratize the, the, the marketplace, if you like. Now, have you, since you set the company up, had to, had to raise external capital? I mean, I, I check, as I always do, on Crunchbase to see what's going on. But uh, um, have you had to raise external money to build the platform or not? We were. Uh, we went to uh, our private network of investors, you know, people that I knew when I was in commercial real estate to help seed uh, the initial capital for Red Swan. So my, my capital and also capital from some few seed investors is how we started the company. Now, uh, as you've mentioned, we both mentioned, in fact, Red Swan CRE is a marketplace. It's an exchange. Uh, now, the real estate markets are particularly challenging to turn into an exchange because they're not exactly synonymous with, with high levels of transparency. So how much information uh, from issuers are you having to disclose to investors, both at the, at the time the tokens are issued, but also over the lifetime of the, the investment itself? I mean, in terms of the running costs and the rental income and so on. Has that That's been a challenge, you know, getting issuers to, to, to share information with investors? That's a good question, Dominic. But uh, you know, SEC regulates that uh, we do things above board and try to make sure we're in full compliance. You know, as a expert in, in the real estate industry, we basically understand how to underwrite assets and look for validating values of property. So the, a, a thorough vetting process is done for all initial projects we put on our platform in terms of the you know financing of the project, uh, the sponsors behind the project the forecasted uh, earnings that the project is going to make and the overall business plan for that property. And so we've you know, vetted out to make sure that makes a lot of sense. Uh, but going forward, we want to provide our investors with uh, quarterly financial statements, which are supplied by the sponsor. And they gives an idea as to how the project is going from quarter to quarter. It also allows an investor to be able to look back at the initial underwriting that they made the decision with to see if the project is keeping track with the business plan. Now, what's your 
commercial model. How are you getting paid for operating this platform, running this service? Do you, do you take fees of the of funds at issue, or do you take transaction fees when uh, investments are made or tokens are issued? What's the model? Well, the, the whole goal is to try to reduce fees for our investors. So overall, using the blockchain reduces a lot of fee friction. But uh, our, our business model does qualify for uh, some receiving fees from capital that's raised successfully. Uh, not as much as we probably would normally charge, but we think that it's a competitive price point. Uh, but also, we will look at asset management. So managing the tokens that are created over the life of that token uh, creates a small fee, but also provides a significant benefit to our investors in terms of keeping up with corporate communication, you know, tax documents such as K-1s, and also dividend distribution into the appropriate wallets. And have you been able to make a comparison of, of how much money issuers save by using Red Swan compared to conventional uh, fundraising uh, techniques or not? Well, the, right away, there's some transactions that uh, elim are eliminated. So, for example, title uh, processing is eliminated. Uh, brokerage fees are kind of eliminated for uh, the buyer. Um, so these are significant fees that usually a buyer is going to pay. Uh, they have legal fees. A lot of things they, they would normally trans have to transact with in order to finalize a transaction are either substantially reduced or totally eliminated. So we like to look at the fact that a person buying digital securities right now is bringing 100% of their capital to that asset, right? And so the fee, there's no fee for them to pay to actually buy the investment at the price they're offering. So that's a major significant difference for uh, acquiring commercial real estate. Right, so definitely cost savings. And now you, you mentioned the, uh, the SEC a minute ago, and we'll, and we'll come a bit later to what that means for investors in particular, accredited investors, but what is the regulatory status of real estate tokenization in the US now? Are you relying on the Howey test that these are security tokens, they look like, sound like tokens, you know, sorry, securities, therefore they are securities, or is there some special regime or paper which the SEC or another regulator has published? What's the regulatory status of what you're doing in the US in, at a high level? What we're doing is we are issuing security tokens. So the Howey test is very appropriate and we uh, definitely look at the issues, the shares we're issuing to investors being security tokens and they are following the, the auspices of the SEC and FINRA regulations. So, um, yeah, it, there's no two buts to, there's no way of looking past this. An investor has to be KYC and has to be an accredited investor in order to participate uh, here in the United States with our offerings. Uh, on the other hand, investors from overseas are Reg S. Uh, they don't have to be accredited investors, but they do go through a KYC process to make sure we can identify that they're not on any uh, suspected list. Mm -hmm. okay. uh, I'll probe you a bit, bit later on, on on Reg D and Reg S a bit further when we, when we talk about the investors. But we could talk first about the issuers. Uh, an obvious question is, how do you control the quality of, of the real estate assets you're offering uh, on your exchange? Do you rely on agents? Uh, do you make physical visits yourself? What, what, are, the, what are the systems for, for making sure these are what they purport to be? Again, we're trying to bring institutional quality assets to the marketplace, which has been, you know, where access has been limited for most uh, average investors. So when you start looking at this type of quality product, then you really focus on the sponsors and their level of experience, 
Uh, and so they have a long you know, tail of experience in terms of billing, managing, and offering value add to, to uh, properties. And so that's an initial criteria is who are the sponsors, where's the property, but the same due diligence of making sure you have a quality location in a quality market and there's viability on the marketplace as well are, are really the surrounding factors that determine value. Then you look at more of the income producing factor of the project uh, and also the financing that's involved in it. So we think that these assets are, quali- are verified and vetted extremely well and brought to the audience because they're really buying alongside of uh, very experienced uh, operators and, uh, and uh, sponsors. So therefore, they should feel rest assured that if this sponsor has 25 years of experience in successfully building or operating, uh, managing uh, commercial real estate assets, that they would actually have their income or their investment in a very comfortable position because right alongside of someone who's, uh, well, I would say, an expert in the business. Mm-hmm. Uh, where are you Where are you finding you're getting issuers from? I mean, it would be surprising if issuers were looking to raise the whole amount for, a, say, a property development from, from your exchange, but I guess that's a possibility. But are you finding issuers of the type of people who, uh, I don't know, they're selling some, a development, they want to take some money off the table, or they want to sell a whole building, or they're trying to fund a, a new development, or maybe they're just running a like a real estate fund. Where are you finding your issuers are coming from? We are we look for issuers uh, that we target, and really we target, like I said, the quality issuers that are uh, investing in uh, institutional quality assets. But um, you know, the usually recapitalization is what we go after because they already have an asset, they have already shown a level of sophistication in operating that asset. And now they may be looking to pull capital out so they can re-evaluate the asset or upgrade the asset with uh, that new capital. Uh, But yes, sometimes, you know, the equity in a property builds up over the years. And, you know, it's not in the best interest all the time for the sponsor to sell that property. It might not be the right season to sell that property. The property might just be doing well and continue to do well for a long time, but they want to be able to bring a lot of capital out of the property so they can go buy other assets. So these types of recapitalization scenarios is what we target. We also look for new development projects, which are are also vetted very carefully. This is a new construction project, whether it be multifamily or hospitality or office in certain marketplaces. We wanna make sure that they own the land uh, free and clear, and also make sure that that project's been vetted by a financial institution that's gonna provide the actual uh, construction loan. And then we'll come in and do a, another additional analysis on that property to make sure we think it's feasible in that market area and then help them with uh, the additional capital raise necessary to complete the, the uh, financing of that project. And how does the actual issuance process work? Is it like a, a, a pre-sale, pre-marketing period where potential investors can, can view the information before deciding how much they want to invest and at what price? Yes, that is the way we do that on our site. Um, we allow, first of all, investors to come on board and have, first of all, they give us their information. So we have a KYC on the investor, make sure they're accredited. Um, but then we open up our, our marketplace so they can look at all the projects that we have and be able to do a, you know, a desktop underwriting of those assets. So they're able to now look and see the, the, you know, the financial reports, the, the rent rolls, the, the actual debt itself, uh, information about the, the sponsors in the project. So they can get a lot of 
information on right on the desktop from our website. And then they're able to come back and say that they're interested in expressing interest uh, in this project, investment interest. And so they now have an option of how much they can invest. Uh, they will let us know by just you know, dropping down to the right number that they're looking to put in. And that now is recorded on our soft cap table for that project. And so we like to get to the point where we're oversubscribed with uh, allocation requests for each asset. And then once we're oversubscribed to a certain point, we now move towards closing this asset out and contact the investors to now convert their expression of interest into a actual purchase. Uh, so that's the process. It gives them plenty of time to do their analysis and then also plenty of time to actually fund the project. But to be clear, this is not an auction platform, is it? The price is set and they they buy the tokens on the basis of the uh, the yield they expect to get from the asset. It's not an auction platform, is it? Absolutely. It's not an auction platform at all. We, we think that we're pricing it at the market value and we think that having access to buy at a price point that meets their uh, level of affordability is what we strive to achieve. And for issuers, what's your rate of success been? Are issuers tending to, to hit the funding target they set or not? Some projects do very well. Some projects take a little more time. Um, we give the sponsor as much time as they want to raise capital. Um, but we find that the very attractive assets they're offering, you know, attractive yields to get a lot of attention right away. And also projects in, in cities that people recognize um, uh, by name are to get a lot of attention right away. So we have some projects that have capitalized within, you know, 60 days. And we've had some projects that take six months to capitalize fully. And which um, which sectors of the of the industry? Uh, you mentioned multifamily uh, at, at the outset, um, but it could be offices, could be warehouses. Which are proving, from an issuer perspective, which are proving most receptive to the idea of raising money through the issue of security tokens? Well, multifamily is the hottest food group of all the commercial real estate uh, out there, but. And so you find a lot of uh, investors migrating towards multifamily offerings. Um, but I think that there's going to be a lot of activity and opportunity in the office and hospitality sector because they're kind of coming out of this uh, COVID environment and in many cases need some rescue money to recapitalize or to restructure. So we think that you know we're looking very carefully at those areas, although predominantly our, our website and platform was founded on multifamily assets because our team comes from a multifamily background. So it was very easy for us to vet and put these types of properties on our website. Mm -hmm. I'm interested you mentioned uh, hospitality. Was that, I'd have expected you to say that was one of the least receptive uh, sectors for, for tokenization because it's had such a hard time during the pandemic. But you say it's it's uh, it's working well because they need to raise capital for precisely that reason. So which sectors of the real estate industry are proving least receptive to tokenization? And if so, why? Well, you know, it's an interesting time period in this market right now because I said multifamily is one of the hottest. Um, also, industrial uh, is also very, very popular right now. But the price points are so high that it's starting to make people back up instead of move forward, right? So it's almost like the multifamily is becoming, is starting to cool off in terms of appetite. Uh, but when you start looking at the other sectors that have had some hard times like hospitality and office and retail, 
the, the fashion, the good old story for buying uh, and investing in real estate is, is uh, buy low and sell high. So if you now start looking at troubled properties in good locations with new operators, they're very good with a good business plan. All of a sudden you have a new opportunity to buy at a better price point and hopefully make a better return overall. And are you finding that uh, industrial, commercial, financial corporations, many of which have quite extensive uh, property portfolios, are they interested in tokenizing some or all of their property portfolios? Which ones? I'm sorry. I'm talking here of, of industrial, commercial, financial corporations, you know, banks, retailers, um, manufacturers who might own I've, office buildings or factories. Are they interested in tokenizing any of those? We've talked to some companies that have real estate um, interested in tokenizing, for example, some, some um, uh, you know, the cannabis companies, cannabis industry is very interested because they have a lot of capital invested in their real estate assets. And you know, because of some of the laws that were very restricted, they had to use cash. And so they have a lot of capital in their assets and they'd like to be able to liquidate some of that uh, capital. So those are companies that have real estate part of their operation. They're looking and talking to us, um, but there are also um, tech companies that are doing, um, you know, power plants for uh, providing energy uh, are also looking, you know, these mining facilities are also looking for uh, ways to recapitalize some of the real estate that they need to operate with. Uh-huh. And I guess Bitcoin miners are natural um, pioneers of, of tokenization too, aren't they? They are. And there are a lot of them coming to Texas right now because of, uh, you know, what's happening in China. So we're seeing a lot of migration of, of miners coming into our state and setting up mining operations and they need real estate, just like data centers need real estate. So these are the type of businesses that we're seeing. They're looking to analyze their company and their properties to figure out how much capital they can actually recapitalize. Mm-hmm. What, about, what about bank loans? I know the U.S. banks made a bit more progress than, than our European banks in uh, cleaning up their balance sheets, but and I thought there's quite a lot of non-performing loans sitting on, on bank balance sheets around the country who might be interested in tokenizing those as opposed to disposing of them back to the central bank or, or at a huge discount to, to a rival bank. Are they interested in tokenizing bank loans, non-performing we've, ones particularly? We've talked to a few banks. Uh, we've considered even partnering with a, one of a couple of major uh, banks that are involved in commercial real estate. Um, and I think that there are some banks who would like to lower their, their uh, position uh, in terms of ownership of real estate or financing real estate. So they're able to loan the value um, just because they think that there may be you know, some downturns in the marketplace and therefore having a less uh, loan the value or less exposure is probably better for them. But uh, yeah, they're considering tokenizing uh, debt. Uh, they're looking at various options in which they can use to provide faster liquidity. Let me talk a bit about the, the investors now, and I'd like to begin by asking a, um, a technical question, which is about fractionalization. And a lot of security tokenizers I talked to are a little bit skeptical about the value of this. After all, you can fractionalize things by, by issuing shares. Uh, one of the advantages put forward is that it enables you to lower the minimum investment amount. So you can start to accept smaller sums of money without incurring massive costs through through tokens as opposed to shares. So there are real reasons for minimum investment amounts, which are the administrative costs 
uh, can get out of control if you've got people investing relatively small amounts. But how useful have you found, or your issuers found, I suppose, fractionalizing uh, their offerings so that they can attract a smaller class of investors? Well, that's the name of the game, is uh, to be able to bring a new source of investor into the investor pool, right? We think that uh, because of the high cost of entry, that it uh, eliminated a lot of you know, accredited investors, high net worth individual investors to get into the business. So by lowering the price, we're seeing a lot of more activity, at least on our platform, we're seeing close to $370 million worth of bid or uh, activity of people making bids on properties. So, and that's sometimes mis- denominations as low as $1,000, right? Um, so I think the biggest fear that most of the sponsors had was, you know, being able to happen to maintain and communicate with this many investors at one time. It's really easy when you have three or four of your you know, friends or close family of, uh, members uh, invested because it's easy to communicate. But when you now have three, 400 investors uh, from all over the world investing, it might be a little bit more difficult. And that's where we come in with a solution because now they can just work with Red Swan. They can issue one S one to K one to Red Swan, and then also when it comes to dividend distribution, they're making one payment, and then we're taking those payments and dividing them into the various wallets of our investors pro rata. So it makes it a lot easier for corporate communications because put everything on the blockchain and allow people now to take their communication off of their dashboard as opposed to uh, having them you mailing out letters and having joint calls with all your investors. So we make that process um, more seamless for the sponsor. I guess people who wanted to invest in property in the past would have bought a real estate investment trust, a REIT, or they'd have invested by proxy in the sector by buying property company shares. You're, you're saying that you, you're starting to attract a whole new class of investor. So those people you're attracting now were not investing in REITs and property company shares before. They just weren't investing in real estate at all. Um, but do you think you can start to, to take business from those investors that are investing in, in REITs and real estate company shares now using this technique? Well, it's interesting. I think uh, that's a good question to ask the investor, but I think that the investor now having more options to buy uh, projects that they like. You know, when you're giving your money to a centralized uh, investment uh, entity, uh, you're now letting them make the decisions for you because you don't want to make decisions yourself, or they won't let you make the decisions that you think they'll do a better job. I think the the new generation is now starting to take more um, uh, ownership of making good decisions themselves, learning that process and controlling uh, their own assets. So rather than buying into a mutual fund or a REIT where you're taking buying you know the baby in the bathwater, so to speak, uh, you might want to use this process because you can now. If you like high rises, you can now specifically target high rises in various markets and buy the shares that you afford that you can afford. Or if you want to buy all industrial, you can find the industrial projects in the markets that you're looking for and buy what you can afford. So I think it creates more diversification for mm-hmm. individual portfolio, as well as makes it more affordable for them to be able to diversify on their own. And I think that's more fun as actually when you think about it, you know, to be able to say that I bought these individual properties and even be able to show eventually the NFTs of all these properties in your portfolio. Uh, it's a sense of pride, I think, investors would like to have. 
So that's the real value of fractionalization. You could take a relatively small portfolio, I don't know, $1 or $2,000 even, and you could diversify even that amount by buying tokens, part in offices, part in commercial, part in retail, part in multifamily and so on. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. You can buy tokens in many different types of properties uh, at your your affordable level, but you can also trade them almost like you when you have a coin collection. You're buying coins, different price points, some are cheap, some are high. You're buying what you want. And then when you want to sell them, you sell what you want because you're making the decisions for yourself as opposed to letting someone else tell you what's best and charging you fees for it. Right. So I, I think it's a, it's a better uh, tool for people to have overall. Now, there's always going to be a class of investor who don't want to do their own diversification. They'd like somebody to do it for them, as you yourself said a minute or two ago. Are you offering funds for that type of investor? They don't want to deal directly. They want to invest directly in tokens, but they do want to diversify their risk. Can they can they get funds through, through Red Swan? That's a great question. Yes, we can. We established two funds, a value-add fund and also... Uh, a core fund. So based on all the assets that we've tokenized, uh, we have a fund that will give them a blended return, uh, which is fixed uh, as a minimum of four and a half percent and five and a half percent on value add. So if they're new to real estate and just want to learn, they can put it into the fund and they'll see what the fund has invested as money in digital assets. And they now own a balanced share, either core or like I said, value add. Um, Or they can have both. Once they learn about investing in the fund and seeing how that's working out for them, they can now say, I want to target my own asset and buy something individual outside the fund. But yeah, we've made sure that for those investors who are trying to use this as a learning opportunity and just merely want to be a blend some of their their portfolio into real estate, they can easily buy from our fund. Now, you explained um, earlier on that most of your investors are uh, in the U.S. domestic investors anyway, are, are accredited or Reg D investors. That means they're relatively wealthy or relatively sophisticated or both of those things. Um, you've explained what attracts them to, to your marketplace, but is there any disadvantage to either you or your issuers uh, in being reliant from a regulatory perspective on, on Reg D? Are there investment restrictions or anything like that? They are restrictions. They have to be accredited for Reg D. Um, they also... Uh, have a seasoning period uh, when they make their investments. So they can't sell for 12 months. Um, after the 12 months, they now can put those shares, any one of the shares they have on the secondary market for for this, you know, for disposition. Um, Reg S doesn't have that problem. Reg S, because they're not uh, interacting with the SEC, uh, they can be non-accredited and they have no seasoning period. They can buy and then turn around and sell, but they have to only sell to another Reg S investor. They can't turn around and sell to a Reg D investor. So those are the restrictions around the international investors as well as the national Reg D investors. Right. To, be, to be clear, Reg S is non-American uh, investors yes. who enjoy, a, if you like, a lower level of protection. Um, but are you, are you attracting a lot of Reg S investors? You're attracting foreign capital? We are. I mean, we're registering... You know, I would say close to 100 investors a day on our web on our website, and I would say at least 30 to 40 percent are from countries all over the world. Um, and it just amazed me to figure out how we're attracting that uh, that many different countries. But I think people in general are are very interested in buying dollar-denominated assets from the United States, 
And so when they hear about Red Swan, they see what's available uh, and get on board. Mm -hmm. You you mentioned a while back that uh, you were running KYC, AML, CFT sanctions, screening checks. And I guess because your investors are accredited, you've also got to to check that they are indeed accredited. You've got to look at their their net worth and, and so on. How are you... How are you doing that onboarding process, both from the point of view of money laundering and the point of view of accreditation? Can you, to what extent can that be automated? To what extent is it actually manual? It's all automated. So a person uh, running their uh, US uh, KYC process before they purchase, they actually have to take a photograph off their cell phone of themselves, uh, submit the documentation by uploading it, so that is a manual process they're using their cell phones to facilitate, but it processes them through our accreditation uh, verification process. We also use third-party uh, verifiers for uh, overseas investors so that they have many databases of data they can now run on that particular investor using their passport or their national ID. I guess my, our, our favorite subjects at uh, Future of Finance, digital identities, would enable you to automate that even faster and better, wouldn't it? Yeah, biometrics is playing a big part. So that's huh? automating it much faster because once they put their biometric facial features or their fingerprint inside, uh, they've scanned many databases that have their pictures and it actually helps you know, expedite the process to see if they're on any lists or not. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I think technology is, is stepping in and making that process a lot smoother and a lot faster and a lot less costly. I may be about to ask you sort of two questions in one, but I've had the impression, perhaps erroneous, that, that institutional investors are not yet fully persuaded this is something they want to do. And by, and by institutional, I mean, you know, family offices, hedge funds, private banks, the sort of, peop- sort of firms you'd expect to get involved early in an asset class of, of this type. So... Am I right to think that institutional investors are not pioneering uh, with you uh, on, on the Red Swan marketplace or not? Am I just wrong about that? Yeah, I think that's an incorrect statement. I think the institutional investors, at least the larger ones we're dealing with, are very interested in the space. Uh, yes, yeah, so they're not going to be quick to make an investment. They're not going to be quick to jump in and start buying digital assets, but they're definitely doing their homework to understand the process, understand the, the jurisdictions behind it, and also what we have available to sell and what type of pricing they're looking for. So we're having conversations with you know, sovereign wealth funds, with Fortune 500 companies, um, with major Fortune 500 investment companies who are all trying to get their, handle, uh, their hands around uh, this digital asset space. Because I think at the end of the day, they wanna replace some of the assets in their balance sheets that are analog with digital assets. The question becomes how much and which assets should they jump into and for what reasons? And I guess institutions are going to be more sensitive to, to questions of, of regulation, particularly around investor protection, because they're in this, many of them in this fiduciary position. Have you ever considered uh, looking to broaden the appeal of what you're doing by going for a full SEC registration? In other words, making your tokens available to basically all classes of investor in the United States? And if, if uh, not, you know, what's the case for and against doing that? Well, for us, um, we hope that that we hope that the accreditation, accredited invest, investor status um, becomes a little bit less stringent. And I think that over time, 
Uh, the SEC has been lightening up some of the rules. I mean, now they're opening it up to people who are involved in the financial industry, don't have to have any other uh, special accreditation because they know about what they're doing. And it it's really makes sense. You don't want people investing the money into something where they don't know what they're doing, uh, have no idea what the returns are. So I think eventually when people you know, can pass a test and understand what they're investing, they should be allowed to invest in this. But until that point, we're going to follow you know, the SEC's guidelines and, and focus on only accredited investors uh, just because we want to make sure that one, we're doing the right thing that the SEC uh, mandates, but two, that we don't uh, encourage people who should not be investing to be investing in this type of uh, investment vehicle because you know there is some risk involved in real estate, right? And so it's not for everybody. Now we touched a minute ago on on Bitcoin. Can people invest in tokens on your platform using cryptocurrencies or stable coins, or must they use? U.S. dollars, fiat currency. No, actually, uh, we are targeting investors that have cryptocurrency in their possession right now, which really is a large percentage of the Reg S investors have a lot of cryptocurrency, just because they're already in the space, they know what they're doing, um, and they know how to maneuver their their digital capital. But we are encouraging uh, Reg D investors and investors around the world who are not in the digital space and showing them the benefits of using digital capital and encouraging them to learn more about it. But, you know, we realize that the, the response rate we're getting people signing up and making pledges are people who are already kind of in this digital space. They own, you know, Bitcoin or Ethereum uh, cryptocurrency, or they have USDC, and they're looking to use that to move into a digital asset. But I think it's an educational process that's taking place around the whole world in terms of, uh, getting more adoption into the digital space, but there's already over $3 trillion worth of cryptocurrency in the marketplace. And that's our target to attract them into uh, parking their money in a different form of digital savings. I can see why lots of investors would want to invest their crypto in, in real estate, but what, what's the issue of you? Are they comfortable with that risk? Are they comfortable they can hedge it if they're actually raising you know, capital in the form of Bitcoin or Ether or whatever? You know, I was talking to a miner over the weekend who was sharing me with me that everything they produce goes into um, some sort of cryptocurrency and not into any fiat currency uh, because they feel more comfortable that at least the cryptocurrencies are going up in value versus fiat dollars are continuously going down in value. So uh, to answer that question, it's like they are people who are looking for digital currencies, uh, but they're also, I'm finding that people who are looking at our product are not familiar with digital currency, but they're looking at the liquidity aspect. So, you know, they're not your typical small private investor. They're more of your uh, more experienced investor who's looking to buy an entire asset and sees this as an opportunity to buy an entire digital asset, take those digital shares and distribute it amongst their current investors and are now giving those current investors uh, a level of liquidity. So they now can raise capital faster because they're offering liquidity to the investors on the projects they're buying. So that's what makes it uh, our product attractive to some uh, sponsors who are not your typical uh, accredited investor looking to invest 10,000 to 100,000, but those who will then put down 50 to a, you know, 10 to $50 million to buy an entire asset uh, because they feel like that structure is much more conducive to uh, the future 
of, uh, of accumulating more investors. Now, one last question uh, on the investor side, it's a basic operational question. Now, if I was to invest on your platform, could I use my own digital wallet or do I have to use the, the Coinbase service which you, which you provide? You could use your digital wallet to just basically transfer your currency, your digital currency over to Red Swan's account. Uh, we will accept any cryptocurrency because we can convert it into any form of uh, currency that we like. So we can convert Bitcoin into US dollar or Bitcoin into USDC. So yes, you, you can basically use your digital wallet and then uh, send money via your address to our wallet. And then we give you a confirmation of that. And then we would now afford you the shares that you purchased. So you can keep your tokens in your own wallet. You don't have to use Coinbase. You don't, yeah, you don't have to use uh, our custodian. You can custodian those coins in your own personal wallet. Uh -huh. Sure. Right. And if you don't have a wallet, we can provide one for you. Okay, but you're working exclusively with Coinbase on the on the token custody side. I'm right to understand that, am I? We are. We we feel that Coinbase is a, a fine institution that's been around for a long time. They have very little problems with uh, loss of funds, and we wanted to make sure we were with a large institution that can give the best care, custody, and control of our customers' assets. Okay. Now, talk a little bit about the about the trading of these of these tokens. Obviously, exchanges exist for price discovery to to aggregate liquidity, and the starting point must be the price. So, how, and we touched on this earlier. Uh, these these how are these properties valued? Is what I'm saying. Do, do you know are surveyors putting a price on it? Is there if it's in a fund? There's obviously a, uh, or even if it's not in a fund, there's some kind of net asset value to it. A yield is put on it comparable to similar properties and then you've got this this secondary market which is going to presumably have started to develop already where people are, are kind of buying and selling their tokens after that one year lockup period ends um what what's the how are these properties valued is it a combination of all of these things and, and how would you expect valuations to evolve over time would you expect the secondary market prices to become the dominant influence or will there always be this net asset value calculation this formal valuation process underlying it? Good questions. Um, you know, it's still pretty early with regards to secondary market activity. I always uh, tell my colleagues that you need a primary issuance before you can have a secondary trading. And right now, the primary issuance for uh, commercial real estate assets have been limited to um, the, uh, at least here in the United States, to the Aspen Hotel project that was issued in, in uh, October of 2018. And the two projects we issued uh, through Red Swan, and I'm not sure if there are others, but those are the most uh, institutional type quality assets that I know of that have been issued. Well, so far, the only one that had the 12 month uh, seasoning period would be the Aspen Hotel. And those shares are trading at a premium. They were issued at a dollar. And now you look on, on uh, T0, the uh, ATS they're trading on, and they're trading for $1.25, the last I saw it, $1.28. So there seems to be a premium with regards to that. I think that um, the initially the value is going to be based on the initial valuation of the project, which is you know looking at the asset, the market, and also the cap rate uh, for that marketplace. And that's what the issuance value is going to be. But the secondary market value will be determining on how well that project is still maintaining its original value. So if it was issued at a dollar uh, and valued at $50 million because it was making, a, say, a $5 million NOI, 
where's the NOI today compared to where it was when it first issued? And if it's higher, then of course we think the shares will be trading at a higher price. If it's lower, it's possible the shares will be trading at a lower price. So that's, I think, a big determining factor of where the value of the asset is performing since the last uh, recorded position. Secondly, I think that the motivation for someone who wants to sell and how they price it will be another determination uh, for a secondary market value. So if this is looking to unload a lot of shares that they own, and there's only been light buying on that, then I would think that the pricing they're asking for is going to be adjusted for them to unload all the shares they want to sell versus they just wanted to sell a few shares at a time, that adjustment may not be so severe. So you never really know until uh, it's on the market, but I think there are a lot of conditions that will affect that pricing. Like I said, the performance of the asset and then the motivation uh, of the buyer and the seller. And do you have a sense of how much data uh, investors and trading firms are um, are looking at? I, I mean, things like I don't know, the energy consumption of the building, the occupancy rates, the, the number of people going in and out of the building, um, I don't know, even the traffic around the building, what the occupancy rates are in nearby properties and so on. There's, there's all this data becoming available, which affects property valuations. Um, I guess this is not something you directly see, but all of which might influence prices on your market as well once, the, once liquidity starts to develop in a serious way. Am I right to think like that? You're right. Uh, absolutely, Dominic. Uh, the data is important. Of course, we do our initial valuation for the property on the issuance. We consider a, a lot of data around the property, the, you know, the demographics, you know, the traffic reports around the property, um, the school systems around the property. So a lot of this data is considered when we're putting the value out. And usually that's pushing for you know, the, the higher value, if it's, if, it's, you know, if it's worth it, you push for the higher value because not only is a property making a good you know, level of income, but the data around the property supports stronger growth, right? Like jobs coming in from Apple headquarters, things like that. And I think after the issuance, the data you're talking about uh, is going to be very important. And we're working with uh, companies right now who are doing, you know, AI type evaluations who are looking to and talking with us on what type of data points uh, in the hundreds of data points would actually influence uh, a higher value versus a lower value. So that's you know interesting that right now we evaluate a property with you know high, a low, a medium, and a high value, right? And basically, is might be twenty basis points difference between uh, the high and low, and then twenty basis points between the low and high. So forty all together. That could be a big swing in terms of price. Um, and what's going to make that determination is what are the other data points around the asset. We know the price point in terms of NOI, but what are the data points around the asset that will support stronger revenue, stronger leasing activity, uh, stronger demographics, uh, stronger construction coming in the marketplace? Or what are some of the data points that are going to consider a weakening of the marketplace? Um, you know, what happens if COVID uh, kicks back in? These are things that will, you know, that people can look at and then make a pretty good decision as to what price point they would want to offer for that asset or that share. Yeah. Now back to liquidity, which we which we touched on earlier. A lot of tokenization enthusiasts you talk to, you know, give the impression that actually liquidity just arises spontaneously, but of but of course it doesn't in in any market. You have to you have to create it in a way. And real estate has the particular problem, of course, that it's intrinsically illiquid. 
And this, of course, is one of the reasons why you, you know, tokenization has an appeal that it can just technically uh, make intrinsically liquid assets more, more liquid. But how are you creating liquidity? I saw you, you've got like a bulletin board, um, but are you looking at, at ideas like um, market makers, lead brokers to, to encourage liquidity in the tokens? We are. We think that if people own assets at some point, they're going to want to sell the asset. Um, and, you know, let's, let's face it, by converting the asset into a digital uh, security, you are giving yourself at least the option to have liquidity. If you don't have it in a digital form and you're buying into an LLC, a private LLC, you really have no option for liquidity except for the sponsor you bought it from, which means we have one buyer. So we think that by tokenizing, you now have the optionality to put your shares out there to the world to bid on whatever price you're off you're asking. So uh, in, with that in mind, we have a peer-to-peer -peer process, which is a bulletin board on our website. So as soon as somebody wants to sell some of their shares, they let us know and we publish that sale amount, that, what their asking price is. And our investors can now look through and see what's on the secondary market that uh, is a peer-to-peer -peer offering and bid. They can make a secondary bid for it. And we think that will be one of the fastest way for them to have liquidity. However, if they want more exposure, we also have broker dealers, uh, our preferred broker dealers, Template Markets, who has a matching system, a digital matching system, which will take this order out and put it through the digital matching system and find a buyer who's willing to match the price that is being offered. So um, there are many ways to, to generate liquidity, but it starts with someone making that uh, designation that they want to sell uh, some or all of their shares. I'm glad you brought up Templum because I was interested in, in what that relationship did. Is there more to it than just the, the matching engine they have? Do you expect that relationship to, to evolve into something where, they've, where they actually play a much larger role in bringing liquidity to, to the Red Swan marketplace? Do they produce research? Um, do they bring institutional investors? How would you expect that relationship to evolve over time? Well, I think the secondary market is really where all the gravy is in the industry. And so there's a lot of uh, ATSs and broker dealers who are forming um, exchanges so that they can facilitate liquidity. And yes, we think that that's one of the primary role they would service, which is you know providing data research to let people know uh, what's happening. You know, there's going to be some probably market information. Whenever you dial onto the screen, you'll see what's trading in the real estate sector uh, through the world so that that's available to you. But I think that uh, also they provide a very um, regulated process. Uh, we use them, use their technology to be able to, to process the, the payment rails and the regulated rails for issuing securities uh, to third-party investors. Uh, we do that because we want to make sure that that's constantly being updated with the latest and greatest jurisdictions coming from the SEC. So working with a broker dealer that is uh, finally in tune with uh, the SEC and you know updating the regulations on a regular basis is where we want to be. That's not our core business, but that's where we want to be in terms of satisfying customers. So we hire a group like Templum Markets to, to make sure that uh, they provide that service to our customers. Mm -hmm. I've got some other questions just to, to close our conversation really about the about the future here. And you touched on this earlier, uh, that the pandemic is, is causing some rethinking and, and in fact reallocation of real resources inside the, the real estate market. And you've got uh, people working from home more, you've got people wanting to work in satellite offices more, that has implications 
across the board for, for, for retail sites, for big city center office blocks, for warehouses, for delivering uh, goods to people working at home and, and so on. How helpful do you think tokenization is going to be in helping the industry adapt to the post-pandemic environment in which they, they find themselves? Well, I think since the pandemic started, it's been an um, uh, unfortunate event, but it's been very beneficial to our business because it forced more people to lean on technology, right? It, it forces them to be at home and use their computer more so than you know, the time they're taking to travel to, their, to and from their offices. So I think in general, more people are using technology because of the pandemic. And I think that um, it's also changing the way real estate is gonna function in the future. Because you know, you're seeing you know, vacancies rise in the office sector. You're seeing vacancies rise in the hospitality sector because people are finding it more comfortable to work from home, uh, more productive to work from home. And therefore the demand for the office space is starting to climb. So you think about that, now you're looking at ways to repurpose existing assets to make them more uh, suitable for investment and generate even higher investment opportunities. So I think that the pandemic has made a significant shift in the way we do business. Uh, and I think that more business will be done using your phone and your desktop in terms of making investments, in terms of raising capital. And I believe that uh, we're gonna find more ways to reuse the existing product out there that is now currently suffering from uh, the post-pandemic environment. Now you opened an office in, in Nigeria. Now I have two questions about this. One is, is why Nigeria, but, but the other is clearly you are thinking seriously about exporting what you do to, to other countries. Um, what's, your, what's your thinking about where your business can go internationally over the next, I don't know, five, 10 years? Well, we believe that we have a very, very strong business model. We think that bringing content to the world, digital content of real estate to the world uh, platform is a good business model. Um, and we think that the fastest we can get uh, world global coverage, probably the better for the company. So yes, we have opportunities now to, and we've opened up uh, an office in Lagos, Nigeria. We have a website being launched uh, next week, uh, just focused on the West African marketplace. And that's allowing now accredited investors and just general investors, because they don't have to be necessarily accredited, to log on and register. And we're expecting that to create a level of buying power from that region. Um, we're also targeting certain assets in that marketplace that we think are underutilized, you know, beautiful institutional quality assets that we can target to re repurpose uh, in that marketplace. So we're excited there. But also, we're looking, uh, in addition to Nigeria, we're setting up partnership relationships in, uh, in Asia. Uh, Vietnam is the center, central point for Asia. And we think that's another dynamic market that loves uh, U.S. real estate. And, you know, we'll be funneling a lot of capital uh, towards making real estate investments as Reg S investors. So when I was in Cushman Wakefield uh, in capital markets, I, a large percentage of my clientele were Asian clients. And uh, matter of fact, they probably uh, generated at least 30, 40% of my income because we were pretty, pretty much introducing institutional quality assets to them, you know, 8,000 miles away before they got to the market. And they were very appreciative because now they can actually transact 
when typically a market a property comes to the market in the United States, they're not included in that announcement. And by the time they do get wind of a property being available, by the time they fly down to look at it and make a decision, is usually under contract, so they miss out. So this is now giving an opportunity for investors, individual investors all over the world, to be able to buy quickly and uh, be invested in U.S.-dominated assets. As you've just said, you were in the capital markets group at, uh, at Cushman and Wakefield. Where do traditional real estate firms like that fit into a tokenized future if you know 35 percent of of the of, of the group's revenues were coming from international real estate sales in a fully tokenized world that doesn't sound like it's going to be sounds like that revenue stream in that form is going to be at risk for them i mean is there a disintermediation story here in which firms like cushman and wakeful if they don't adapt become less important to the way property is bought and sold and financed Absolutely, uh, Dominic. Uh, disintermediation is definitely uh, showing its face in this industry. I saw that in 2018 when I made the decision to move. That um, you know fees are becoming more commodity driven, and therefore going in, they're contracting uh, overall. Fees were going down from one percent down to 20 basis points on certain uh, brokerage uh, opportunities. But I think that is also an opportunity to to reinvent a new way of doing business. There's a lot of space in the industry of blockchain for brokers, real estate brokers to get involved. Still, they have the strongest capability of putting valuation on the asset. They know how to describe an asset, an investment asset uh, extremely well, which is very helpful. You don't know too many stockbrokers who know how to talk about real estate IRRs and cash on cash returns like, like a real estate broker can. So I think you're gonna see a migration of brokers. Uh, and I'm already seeing it. We went to a conference in Los Angeles last week, which is a global real estate, uh, Globe Street uh, conference. And we met with a lot of brokers who are you know, big uh, players in their marketplace, who are very interested in working with us on a referral basis as an affiliate, because there's challenging projects for them to sell in today's market. There's a lot of back headwind uh, against selling uh, projects at certain high prices, because what do you do with the money after you sell is, is, is a big problem. So they're looking for other solutions in which their clients don't necessarily have to sell the property. They can pull capital out and stay uh, as a GP and be able to have earn out on that asset, but still be able to pull capital to buy something new. So they're not you know, making a disposition 100%. They're just recapitalizing the equity and then making more acquisitions. So they like that. Um, anytime that someone can assist a broker in making additional revenue, um, we're friendlies to them. We're not, uh, we're not here to take their business away. And one last question for you. Uh, we're clearly potentially on the cusp of something very exciting in real estate, and it could happen on a, on a global scale and, and disrupt uh, quite a lot of um, existing business. Now, to make it happen, uh, we'll probably take lots of different things, but what's the one thing which you would like to see if you could choose one, I don't know, legal change, tax change, regulatory change, or just change in behavior by maybe by investors or issuers, what's the one thing you think could really help the tokenized uh, real estate market to take off into self-sustained growth? What would it be? What's that one magic ingredient? Oh, that's interesting. I think um, governmental, clear, concise uh, government 
um, regulations re around investing in digital assets um, and in investing also in cryptocurrencies would be helpful because I think when there's a cloud of uncertainty around the government in terms of what they're doing, and it's pretty straightforward that we're using um, Reg D and Reg S, we're focusing on accredited investors, but really for those non-accredited, they kind of feel like that's a is a problem. Why can't they invest? Why is it so difficult? Uh, they can go and buy a currency, but they can't buy an investment. So I think there has to be some kind of uh, you know endorsement coming from our, our governments to say that this is okay. This is you know this is why we're doing this, and this is you know okay to do. As opposed to, I think it's still kind of uncertain for many people as to what's going on um, with the regulatory aspect of all this. So if that was one thing I could say was be um, easier to make us sell this product and make the adoption faster, would probably be more of a stronger endorsement from the federal government. Regulatory certainty, it always helps. Edward Keddy, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us.